Hi everyone and welcome to Mind Body Green's beauty podcast, Clean Beauty School. I'm your host and beauty director, Alexandra Engler. Today is a very special episode because today we are diving into the phrase clean beauty. Specifically, we are going to talk about some of the problems with the phrase clean beauty. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the entire podcast hinges on this phrase. Honestly, as does much of the philosophy of beauty at Mind Body Green. I use clean beauty in my personal Instagram account. I use it in almost all of my writing, and I use it when I speak about beauty to my friends. But that doesn't mean it's the perfect way to encompass what we're talking about here. And it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't broader problems with it. See, Language only means something when you give those words meaning. And that's the inherent problem with beauty talk. It's not well-defined, it's not well-understood, and it is certainly not regulated. Clean isn't, but neither is natural, sustainable, organic, for that matter, nor is hypoallergenic, derm-approved, biodegradable. And honestly, let's add beauty itself onto that list. So what are writers, editors, and fans supposed to do? How are we supposed to talk about beauty in a way that is honest and authentic? Well, I went to one of my favorite beauty writers of the day, Jessica Dufino. She has her own substack called Unpublishable, and you've probably read her work all over the web. You might have even seen some of her more viral work on Instagram. She's pretty regularly bringing beauty folk, brands, and insiders to task over our inherent biases, how we can think broader, and the ways we need to step out of our beauty bubble. I couldn't think of a better person to have on to discuss what we're getting wrong when we talk about clean beauty. Jessica, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you today. This is something that I've really wanted to talk about ever since I started thinking about this podcast. And I think it's just such a an important part of this conversation, especially in the world of clean and natural beauty. And I just think you are somebody with such thoughtful insights on this stuff. So, you know, I I think we're going to have a great discussion. But before we get into any of that, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself and talk about how you came into the world of beauty and how you kind of formed some of your opinions. So, you know, I know that you're a beauty writer and editor. How did you start? How did you get interested in beauty? How did you get interested in clean and natural beauty? Yeah. So I started out in the celebrity and lifestyle space when I started my career. So I started out as a wardrobe stylist when I moved to LA after college and I worked with musicians. So I was wardrobe styling for bands like Green Day and Linkin Park. And then I moved into the editorial space. I was working for an editorial agency in LA where we produced like cover shoots for international magazines because we had the celebrity access there. So I was producing shoots for like Harper's Bazaar China with Rihanna and El Mexico at Sama Hayek. And from there, I started working for the Kardashians, actually. So I was one of the editors that launched the official Kardashian Jenner apps. And that's sort of where my interest in beauty started. I think there were like a bunch of things that happened during that time. One, it was like a super high stress environment. You know, I was writing for the most famous woman in the world. So every day felt like uh, a panic attack. (laughs) And then also it was the first time in my career that I had been sent beauty products for free to test because brands just, you know, wanted me to try it and write about it on their apps. 
And I started using all of these like super high-end, very fancy products that I was getting for free. And I felt so cool. But I think the combination of all the products and all the stress, my skin just freaked out. And I'd always kind of had problem skin and I'd taken a lot of prescriptions and pills and anything that my dermatologist would give me for, for acne, for whatever. But this time I developed something called dermatitis. And the textbook treatment for dermatitis is steroids. Long story short, after two years, the steroids ruined my skin. And there was just, there's nowhere you can go after steroids. You kind of just have to like give up and withdraw and hope your skin gets better. (laughs) So I started researching, you know, what was actually happening to my skin and what the steroids had done to them. And were there any ways that I could heal my skin without further irritating it, you know, through things like diet or even like mindfulness and stress reducing practices. And I started getting curious about natural ingredients, which I didn't really care about before. Like I was very, give me a prescription, give me a pill, (laughs) I'll do anything. But since I couldn't do that anymore, I was like, well, I guess I'll just try like honey. (laughs) And I learned so much and I healed my skin And I had just discovered this like wealth of information that I didn't see represented in the mainstream beauty industry. And I was like, why isn't this being talked about? Like, I'm going to pivot my whole career and this is what I'm going to talk about because this is the information that needs to be out there. So, you know, I don't want to call you radical because I think you're just thoughtful, but you have gained some, you know, some traction as a writer who really does speak her mind. You know, you you do publish things that are thought provoking. Your Substack is even called unpublishable. You know, so I I, I want to know this, like when did you transition from more of like a traditional beauty writer, even a traditional beauty writer who wrote about natural skincare to this person who really took on this mantle of, I want to challenge the beauty industry and I want to challenge, you know, the way we talk about stuff. And I just want to challenge what's being done. Was there a pinpoint that you were like, I... I want to change. I, I want to, you know, write these things that other people aren't writing. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when, but it was just, you know, I came into the beauty industry kind of wanting to be outspoken and sort of correct all of this misinformation and the mistruths that I saw circulating. And then the longer that I worked in the beauty industry and I saw like what went on behind the scenes in the beauty industry, the angrier and angrier I got, like suddenly it all clicked. Because when I was researching my skin for myself, I was like, wait, why isn't this information out there? It's so valuable. And then I you know, realized once I was immersed in the industry, why that information isn't out there. And there's so much, there's so much that informs what information gets published for the general public to consume. And that includes things like brand relationships and public relations and, you know, getting free products and going on press trips. And it makes it really hard to question what's happening in the beauty industry or to critique any large brands because when you're writing for a publication, there's always a relationship there. And I just got more and more frustrated with, you know, really wanting to say something important. And then my editor would soften my language or edit the brand name out. And it just felt like I have so much to say, but I can't fully say it. And so people don't fully get it. And so nothing's actually changing. And it just sort of reached this breaking point where I was like, you know what? Some of these stories are really important and I'm going to publish them myself. Sure. 
just out of curiosity, you know, what sort of reactions have you gotten from your readership about all this stuff? You know, is it a case of people being like, I had no idea that this was happening behind the scenes? I'm, as somebody who is in the industry, I'm curious about just the the public reaction that you've gotten, not like the industry reaction, like the 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 real readers out there. The real readers out there, I think, are more skeptical than I had thought they were. Like maybe when I was not in the industry and I was just consuming the industry, I was maybe more gullible than the average person. Like I would read things and be like, oh, of course that's true. But I think readers today are a little bit more on the up and up. Like they get like, oh yeah, there are advertisers. Of course they influence what information gets put in that magazine or up on that site. So I think they, readers are understanding of that and they are grateful to have sort of like an insider confirm that and also be like, here's what the actual truth is, the way that I see it and the way that I've researched it. So yeah, but there hasn't been as much like skepticism or pushback from the average reader that I anticipated. So as a writer, I know that words and definitions matter to you. So one thing I, I know that you write about a lot and one thing that I care about a lot is how we come across or and how we collectively decide specific definitions, especially within the space that you and I both write in, which is the clean and natural beauty space. We know that there are no real definitions around these things. There's no real definition around natural beauty, around clean beauty, around green beauty, about around sustainable all of these words that we throw around and we throw around because, you know, there's what else do we say? So I wanted to ask you, how do you come to define them? And how do you come to grapple with this idea that we don't have a collective definition? Does it bother you? Does it not bother you? You know, what are your thoughts? So, (laughs) yeah, I like to say like nothing means anything in beauty and nothing is real. And I think that people get this with clean because clean is sort of this newest marketing term that we've had to grapple with. And the fact that clean beauty means nothing and and by me nothing, I mean like it doesn't have an enforceable definition. There's nobody checking to make sure your brand is actually clean. There's no master list of ingredients that are clean and ones that are dirty. Like these are just brands make up whatever they want to be clean and say that it's clean. And at first that really bothered me. And I was like, we need definitions. We need clear cut guidelines. But then once I stopped hyper focusing on clean, having no definition, I realized, wait, this is just how the beauty industry has always worked. Like nothing has an enforceable definition. You know, what does anti-aging mean? What does effective mean? What does even like science backed mean? Like none of it means hypoallergenic FDA approved exactly yes there are there's there are no definitions for these things and I think clean because it communicates some sort of standard some sort of safety and because it's new and mostly because it's a challenge to the conventional industry people are like up in arms about the fact that it has no definition but I think if this was like a category that didn't challenge mainstream beauty culture, nobody would bat an eye that it had no definition because nothing has a definition. So I'm torn between two sides of like wanting there to be guidelines, but also being like, well, nothing has guidelines. This isn't anything new. When I think about this and 
what I've kind of come to wrestle with now is if we do want to add a stricter definition to this, then we have to assign somebody to be the regulatory body. And and then you get into the problem of, well, everybody comes to this with their own biases. You know, even the best nonprofits that, you know, we that we like in this industry, they do have their own biases. They do have their own bottom lines. You know, obviously the EU has done a much better job of us. So there is precedent for a governmental body to to do this. But, you know, I think I think what I grapple with a lot is if we want to define these terms, then we have to assign somebody to make sure that we're all using them correctly. And that just becomes challenging in its own right. For sure. Like who gets to decide what is safe? Like even if, you know, say the FDA got involved, say, I don't know, whatever governing body got involved, there would be people who weren't satisfied with that definition. And then we'd get into this situation all over again because, okay, clean is defined and these are the ways that it's defined. And somebody out there is not going to like that definition and want it to be expanded. And we're going to get a new subset of clean beauty and grapple with the same issues over and over again. So yeah, I don't think it's as easy as just getting someone to regulate it. Like I, I think these core issues will just always be there by nature of marketing and by nature of like evolving science. You know, there are ingredients that we question today that 10 years ago, 20 years ago were totally fine. And that's going to be the case 10 years and 20 years in the future too. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what we talk about a lot here is like, we like this idea of, we kind of just play our own standards day by day where we're like, this is where we stand now, but we don't know where we're going to stand tomorrow necessarily. And I, I think a lot in this, in this space, it's like, you have to get comfortable in the uncertainty of it all. Some other words that I want to chat with you about, you know, this idea of sustainable beauty or green beauty. This is another thing where we don't really have any real guidelines. And this is even more nebulous because it's like, when you talk about clean beauty, you can at least be like, well, here's 50 ingredients that can't go into it. There, there's our definition of clean. But when you're talking about green and sustainable beauty, you know, we, that even comes up with guidelines that where do we even start? Because, you know, is it that you have to have recyclable packaging? Is it that you have to have sustainable sourced ingredients? What are some of your thoughts when, when talking about sustainable beauty and like, how do you, in your own writing, how do you come to classify somebody as doing it right? Ooh, that's a great question. And I don't think, I don't think there's any one way to do it right. And I don't think there is any brand that is doing it completely right. Yeah, like you said, sustainable doesn't have this like hard definition. There are no guidelines. And I think what's important for for brands and what's important for me, like as a reporter to look at is it is evaluating the so-called sustainability on on in terms of specifics. And looking at, okay, where is this brand or this company trying to be sustainable? What are their goals and why? Because you can have the goal of being carbon neutral and those action steps will be completely different than if your goal is to be plastic free. So I do think it's important to stop and elaborate a bit more here, specifically talking about the differences between carbon footprint and waste or plastic free. Now, when we talk about a company's carbon footprint, we're talking about their carbon emissions overall, from sourcing the ingredients to manufacturing to transporting. 
if a brand is focusing on their carbon emissions, they are trying to get their carbon footprint to be as close to net zero as possible or carbon neutral. On the flip side, you can also talk about waste or plastic free. This brand of sustainability is all about reducing the amount of physical product in the marketplace, or at the very least, the types of physical products that are hard to recycle. Now, we are certainly advocates of doing your best across the board in as many ways as possible, but sometimes even the choices within sustainability are at odds with each other. For example, glass is often hailed as the better alternative since it's more easily recyclable. However, glass is heavy and can be hard to ship and transport, which will add to the overall carbon footprint. Plastics, on the other hand, are of course lighter, but single use is extremely, extremely hard on the environment. Some estimates say only 8% of what we try and recycle, as in toss in that blue bin, actually end up being recycled. So it's getting specific about where you want to be sustainable, explaining to people why you want to be sustainable that way, and, you know, kind of being honest about challenges in other areas of the business where you're maybe not the most sustainable because you're funneling your resources into this one really important pillar of sustainability for you. And I think something too that gets, that gets kind of lost in some of the beauty sustainability coverage is 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 the human rights aspect of it you know there are a lot of like affordable sustainable brands right now but then you have to look at okay if they're so affordable how are they paying their workers how are they paying the people who harvest these natural ingredients that they're using how are they paying for you know the ingredients that are sourced from all around the world and where are they cutting corners to make it that affordable because if if something is sustainable in the way that it's sustaining the life of the people who are involved making it, it's probably going to have like a bit of a higher price point. And it's really hard to, to manage all of those aspects of sustainability as one brand. Yeah. And it is hard because you do want these sustainable products and clean products to be affordable at a lower price point, but it's just where the market is right now. It's just so hard to do that. You know, one thing that my coworkers and I talk about is, you know, we use clean as sort of a default word because we don't we don't really have anything else that we feel that resonates as strongly with. You know, this podcast is called Clean Beauty School because we went through all the other words and we decided, well, this is the largest and most encompassing. I guess that's the one we're going to go with. Do you have words that you use in your writing that you feel better encompass this space? How do you tackle these words in your writing in general? Like how do you, how would you like the beauty industry to use these words? Is it, you know, how do you, how do you do it in yourself, in your writing? Yeah. I think the key is being really specific because clean is obviously a super broad term. So if I'm reporting on one aspect of clean beauty or one particular brand, like just being really specific about the ingredients they don't use and why they don't use them, or does clean for them mean more along the lines of sustainability? Does clean for them mean 100% natural? And then in that case, I'll use the words natural or organic or looking at what certifications they actually have. So being as specific as possible helps, but then just kind of also accepting that it is what it is. And we're kind of stuck with clean. Like that's, 
that's the word. That's the one that we went with. And like, it does have faults. You know, there are some not so great implications of clean beauty. And I think that's why it gets a lot of flack, like implying that other ingredients are dirty. There's also like, you know, the origins of the concept of cleanliness and beauty. There's a lot of religious indoctrination. If you trace it back and a lot of that gave way to sort of these really dangerous beauty standards, dangerous like physically and dangerous mentally in terms of, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness and this religious idea of purity and how that affected how we see beauty and even how we treat ourselves and our bodies. But I think if we're going to try and change the way we think about beauty or maybe like undertake the gargantuan task of changing its words, or its meaning in the industry and our coverage of it, I tend to think of it as cautious beauty or precautionary beauty because, again, a lot of times we don't have the hard data that says these ingredients are 100% bad for you and the environment. It's about taking a precautionary approach and saying there's some evidence out there. I would rather not use it just in case. So I think of it as like cautious beauty, just in case beauty. Sure. I love that. And I also love this this idea that you're bringing up that clean has this, you know, morality backing behind it that is you're absolutely right. It is it is challenging. It has its own sets of problems that come with it. And it also, you know, it's it's this idea that like clean was this idea of clean beauty was set up to make everyone else feel bad, which I actually don't believe that's the case. I think it's just challenging the industry to be better. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with forcing big industry to be better. Like we do that in all of industry. We do that in the food industry. We do that in the clothing industry. We do that, you know, in, in every other area of industry, the, you know, that the consumer there is an incentive to push them to be better. Why is it all of a sudden in clean beauty that, you know, the people who work that are advocating for clean beauty are somehow the the people in the wrong? And I find that to be one of the more frustrating parts because, you know, we we push to be better and we push to be more progressive and we we push to be better for the environment and in all these different ways. And that's all we're trying to do here. But this idea of clean and clean is better than now. It perhaps like set it up in the long in the wrong light. I just I think that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it that you can trace back like centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years that inform the way that we see things and hear things and why we have like a gut reaction to the word clean that we can't even like consciously articulate. And it's just because this is part of the indoctrination of the beauty industry. And any sort of challenge to that is going to come with, I think, a lot of emotion because beauty is inherently emotional. And I, I think that's what we see with with the pushback is just this, this, yeah, emotional response and emotional connection to beauty. Sure. So, you know, while we're on the subject of, of the word clean, I, I want to ask you about the idea of clean washing. I personally struggle with my thoughts on this because I... You know, on the one hand, I do I do appreciate when large brands decide to better their formulas and take out ingredients that, you know, we know to be we know to be not great for your skin or great for the environment. But on the other, you can't just take out one ingredient and all of a sudden call yourself clean and, you know, that is your marketing tool. And I 
and I grapple with this a lot. And I I don't know exactly where I fall on clean washing and what categorizes somebody as clean washing and what categorizes somebody as just honestly doing their best. How do you feel about this idea of brands coming in and kind of using this word to market and sell products when perhaps they it's not the best word for what they're doing. Yeah, I'm like similarly unsure of how I feel about it and and frustrated by it all. And I think the thing that bothers me is that when we see clean washing or we see these bigger corporations suddenly want to get involved in the clean movement or the sustainability movement, it doesn't seem like their intentions are to actually make the industry safer or more sustainable. It seems like it's sort of capitalizing on this consumer demand, but also this like sort of limited consumer knowledge of what the quote unquote bad ingredients are. So like for me, the one that really stuck out to me was when CoverGirl launched their clean fresh line and they had like all of these ingredients that they were leaving out. Mineral oil was one of them. And it was like, okay, well, mineral oil is a petrochemical. I get why they're leaving that out. But then you look to the ingredient list and it's full of other petrochemicals like PEGs. You know, I talk about petrochemicals quite a bit on this podcast and in my writing. So I just want to stop and explain it here. These are ingredients that are derived from petroleum and are often used in beauty care and personal care, and they come in many, many names. On the surface level, they can be extremely irritating to the skin barrier, but more alarmingly, they produce 4,1-dioxane, which is a carcinogen and a leading contaminant in groundwater. Or they removed sulfates, and it's like, okay, sulfates strip your skin barrier. But then you look at the ingredients, and there's denatured alcohol in there as well, which also strips your skin barrier. So it feels like when we see these these big movements in the clean space from larger corporations, they're not actually intentional. They're not actually solving problems. They're just taking out ingredients with name recognition in the clean space and sort of capitalizing on that without truly trying to make the industry, as you said, any better. And that's, yeah, that's frustrating. And I don't know if there's a solution for that because, you know, of of course brands are more motivated by marketing and sales than they are by, you know, keeping you safe out of the goodness of their hearts. That's not the purpose of a brand. (laughs) And I just, we're never going to be able to get big brands to, to pivot to that. That's just not the nature of how this industry works, which is, you know, it's frustrating in its own right, but it's also realistic to understand that that's just literally never going to happen. So obviously there are a few phrases in the beauty industry that also don't have any definitions. You know, we've we've talked about a few sustainable, we've we've mentioned derm approved, science backed, hypoallergenic, biodegradable. I want to talk about how these words became so buzzy and how how you can kind of like suss out when they're used as more of a marketing claim than actually have the intention behind it. Because, you know, I think some people use these words and they actually mean it and they shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't feel bad about having to use it. You know, if your brand is properly hypoallergenic, you should be able to use that word. If your brand has a formula that is properly biodegradable, then that's an appropriate word for you to use. Cruelty-free, you know, all these things. So I just want to chat with you about how we come you know, how we can help consumers inform themselves when they see these words of, you know, is this brand being honest? You know, what, 
what can they come to expect about these words and their definitions? You know, why don't we why don't we start with hypoallergenic? This is a word that we see a lot today just because I think sensitive skin is on the rise. People are really concerned about allergens. You know, we're just seeing this a lot in the beauty space. How do people really suss out if a brand is being honest about it being hypoallergenic? What can they look for? Are there, you know, specific certifications or, you know, et cetera, what, what do you keep an eye out for? Sure. I think if you as a consumer have a very specific demand from your products or from the brands that you buy from, it's best to go to the brand directly, like email a customer service person or get in touch with them on social media and just see what extra information they can provide. Because if the brand is truly hypoallergenic and they've done all the testing and this is something that they're equally as passionate about as you are, they will have so much information to provide you with. And they will be happy to provide you with that information because that's going to be a brand value. So yeah, I mean, it it isn't fair that some brands use the words and need them and some brands use the words because they're buzzy. And unfortunately, like the onus kind of falls on the consumer to fact check them. But usually if you reach out to a brand with, with any term, with hypoallergenic, with cruelty-free, with you know derm-approved, what dermatologists have approved this? What dermatologists endorse your product? If you reach out to them in an email, in a DM, they will be delighted to provide you with more information because that's going to be something that's important to them as a brand. If they try to hide the information or they sidestep your question, that's probably a sign that their values are not um, aligned with your personal values. I love that tip. I, You're right. It does put the onus on the consumer, but if it's something that you're passionate about, you know, brands have made themselves more easily accessible now than ever, thanks to, you know, social media. So, you know, use that to your advantage. But it does bring up this idea of certification and seals. And I actually have mixed thoughts on certification and seals. I think that on one hand, having a third party check out your work is always beneficial. It's always good to have people kind of fact check you and keep you on your toes. I think that there is always a value in that. But on the other hand, you know, these are organizations with a bottom line too. And they come at this with their own biases. And some of these seals are really expensive. So how do these tiny little brands, you know, get the Leaping Bunny certification if they don't have the money to to shill up? So, you know, how do you wade these waters of certifications versus not certifications? Is it something that you look for? Is it something that you care about? I'm just so curious. Mm -hmm. It's honestly not something me personally, when I am a consumer, it's not something that I am super diligent about. I don't look for any particular certifications. I'm more interested in the ingredient list. I you know, prefer organic or wild harvested, but I'm not um, a stickler for any sort of seal, particularly because I know that that a certification is a barrier for entry, not only for brands, but for also for small farmers. There are so many farms across the world that provide ingredients to beauty brands. And a lot of times the onus will fall on the farmer to have their their goods certified, their farm tested, and that's really expensive. And for me, it's more important to sort of trace back the supply chain of the brands I buy from and feel good about where they're sourcing their ingredients from. And if they're supporting a small business, I love that. And I keep it in mind that that small business may not be able to afford a certification. And I, I try not to let that cloud my judgment while also keeping in mind as a reporter that like, 
you know, certifications give you a certain set of information about a brand and they are kind of that like extra safety net for something that you care about personally. Sure. So, you know, in an episode all about definitions, I think we have to talk about one of the biggest definitions in beauty, which is beauty itself. <laughs> you know, I if we're going to be honest about how we define all these subsets in our in our industry, it's important to be honest about how we come to define beauty as a whole. And I want to just ask you about, you know, how do you how do you grapple with this idea of beauty and how we define beauty? And as beauty writers, you know, how do we <laughs> how do we talk about beauty with the understanding that should we have a definition of beauty period? So I I think in the beauty industry at large, there are a couple of different definitions. I think maybe a pessimistic or maybe like a realistic way, beauty is defined as how close you come to adhering to a beauty standard, whatever beauty standard of the particular time and place that you're in. So in the West, today's beauty standards are very Eurocentric. Beauty standards were informed and created by like the same destructive forces that forge the rest of our institutions. Patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, these forces are imbued in the beauty industry they 100% inform the beauty standards that we are trying to achieve, whether that's anti-aging and, and perma-youth or whether it's, you know, plump lips and a thin waist with a curvy butt. Like all of these standards come from somewhere. And I think in most beauty coverage, like beauty is defined by how close you come to meeting those standards. And then there's like a broader definition that you get into when you sort of get into empowerment marketing and positivity. So that's everybody is beautiful, which is great, kind of, but also like defines beauty as the physical, even like skin positivity. It's like acne is cool. Acne is beautiful. But here's a pimple patch to get rid of it. So like, are we really defining <laughs> beauty any differently than this like original strict definition. And then like with the wellness industry, you get into, we're talking about inner beauty and beauty from within. But when you think about it, that inner beauty, like also always conveniently comes from consuming an external product. So whether that's like a collagen powder or you're paying for a meditation app, you know, it's like, it's usually something external that costs you money and then you can be beautiful from within. So <laughs> it's like, it's very tricky. And, and they're all industrialized definitions of beauty. And I, I think that's why the industry is so powerful. Like beauty is this, my definition, my personal definition of beauty is like beauty is like this basic, inherently human need. We like need beauty in our lives. There's a really great New York Times article I always remember from back in 2013 called Why We Love Beautiful Things. I'll always remember this quote. Brain scan studies reveal that the sight of an attractive product can trigger the part of the motor cerebellum that governs hand movement. Instinctively, we reach out for attractive things. Beauty literally moves us. It's a feeling. It's like this untangible thing that we want to be surrounded by and we want to feel. I think of beauty as like alignment. Like when we come into alignment with our true selves, I think that like calm and that peace, that's what we 
think of as beauty. And that can include physical beauty. You know, that can be expressing yourself physically with makeup and coming into alignment with yourself through your outer expression and adornment. The beauty industry has attempted to take this like intangible philosophical concept of beauty and like push it into this narrow understanding of physical beauty. Um, And I think that's why, you know, we're never really satisfied with physical beauty. We keep buying more and wanting more and trying new things and applying new things because we're searching for this satisfaction that cannot come solely from the physical and we're searching for it in an industry that is only serving us physical beauty and a physical definition. So, yeah, no, that's, I, I love that. And that makes so much sense. If you really think about, you know, how, how we've used beauty through, you know, all of human history, because, you know, there's always been some sort of need for beautification processes, rituals, et cetera, et cetera. And, in all of human history, right? And some of that, as you said, it has been, you know, it has been that physical manifestation of beauty rituals. But when you think about beauty writ large, it's, it's, you know, it, it encompasses so much more, you know, we're drawn to things that make us feel beautiful. We're drawn to people who make us feel beautiful. I just, I think that's really, really beautiful way to talk about beauty because, yeah, obviously we're not satisfied with what we've been given. And so we need to dive into why we're not satisfied. Oh, I love that. Okay. <laughs> that is absolutely something I need to like chew on for a while. Honestly, that is the that is the goal of my whole career is just chew on that idea and be like, wait, why? Why? <laughs> why, why, why? <laughs> Always the question. Okay. So, you know, Again, going back to definitions and things that we that we define and and how those definitions come to fruition in in modern beauty tactics. This is one thing that I have recently read, you know, some of your work and it kind of touches on this. So I'm really, really eager to get um, your take on it. But it kind of comes back to this science backed language. And listen, like we use science backed language in 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 our work. I do. I I obviously support research forward beauty. I think you do too. But at some point you ha- it starts getting into the very muddy waters of what is science backed and what what gets respected and what doesn't. And you know, it's obviously science backed is in 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 a very very strict sense, you know, we're talking about peer reviewed research, we're talking, you know, perhaps clinicals, we're talking about these things. But you know, and that obviously excludes centuries of use of a product or, you know, tons of anecdotal evidence that can't be confirmed because, it, you know, the nature of it can only prove correlation, not causation or, you know, any of these other, these like various tricky things that like can't fundamentally be quote unquote science backed by peer reviewed research because it's, that's just not how this works. And I just want to get your thoughts on it because I, I know that this is something that you have kind of, that you've touched on before. How how do we decide what falls under the respected research of science backed versus versus not? Because we know that there's a lot of things that fall outside of that umbrella that we do respect. Sure. So I think the first thing to point out is that all the things that you listed as what would count as science backed, the peer reviewed research, the clinical trials, all of that, that's Western science. So <laughs> we have this, the, the definition of science in general, the broad word of science has been very skewed by Western beauty, 
Western wellness, Western medical system. And what we consider to be, you know, point blank science is solely Western science. And I think that's a really important distinction. So science, as a word, just means the study of the natural world. So science and nature aren't opposites. And in Western science, they very often are. And that's why I get so frustrated by quote unquote science-backed beauty, because when we're using that, it usually always refers to synthetic man-made beauty or something that's been hyper-studied in like very strict clinical settings. And often nature is left out of that kind of study because you can't patent natural ingredients. There's not a lot of monetary motivation to study these ingredients. And this effectively divorces science from nature. But science is nature. And that's a very dangerous divorce. And I think when we cling to this Western idea of science, we sort of dismiss the more foundational types of science that came before it. I read this really great article in in Atmos magazine the other day, and I can't remember the author, but she was an indigenous woman. She was an indigenous woman and she wrote, indigenous people are very scientific. It's just that our science includes heart. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to think about it. And it made me immediately think of climate change and the, the science of environmentalism. So if you look at that Western science and that Western data, and you look to our best hope for things that will save the planet and reverse some of this damage, they all come from indigenous communities. All of these systems, regenerative farming, helping the soil, controlled burns, these are all things that indigenous communities have been doing for centuries, and they haven't been doing them under the umbrella of Western science. They've been doing it under the umbrella of indigenous science. And now, you know, hundreds, thousands of years later, okay, we can confirm through Western science that these indigenous practices actually do work. And it's like, how much hurt and harm and damage could we have stopped if we had just respected the science and the wisdom that comes from from other cultures? And, And I think it's really important to note that this sort of like dismissal and demonization of Eastern medicine, of indigenous medicine and African medicine, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicines, the dismissal of that is a colonizer mindset. That is like the embedded colonizer mindset that is present in pretty much all American institutions because that's like a value that America was was founded on. You know, America was founded by colonizers that sort of dismissed and discredited and devalued these ways of life that came before them. And I think it's really dangerous to continue carrying that mindset into the future of beauty and the future of wellness and the future of science. And I think if we just start respecting the other and incorporating the other and just, you know, accepting that all these different ways of science can exist together and can be equally valuable, I... I just think the industry would be just such a better, safer place for everybody. Yeah. I absolutely. I and it also you you pointed on this and you're clearly very educated in this, so I just want to ask you about it. It also points to the fact that what gets the quote you know, the Western research and all this stuff, it comes from a place of monetary needs. So can you just explain that for for, for our listeners and just this idea that, you know, the, the sort of science that gets respected, it comes from a place of, is there is there a dollar sign at the end of the, the tunnel? Yeah. So, I mean, scientific studies 
cost so much money. Like it's incredible how much money they cost. And you have to sort of, when you're taking Western science into account and is this ingredient or is this product backed by this certain type of science, you have to think about, well, who would have paid for that study? And is there a reason maybe that study doesn't exist? Generally, things will get studied. A pharmaceutical company or a corporation will funnel money into a study if there is hope for monetary gain at the end of it. So if you're studying an ingredient or a product that you can then make money off of, for example, a drug or a pharmaceutical, natural ingredients can't be patented because they are nature. They don't belong to any one person. So very often natural ingredients don't get studied with the same sort of like rigor and attention that a synthetic ingredient will or a pharmaceutical drug will. Like for instance, Botox, there are billions upon billions upon billions of dollars funneled into Botox. So yeah, we can we can look to Botox and say like, this is the most science-backed ingredient we have. Same with retinoids. There are, there are billions of dollars made off of retinoids, retinoid prescriptions every year in, in dermatology. And yeah, the, yes, that's the gold standard. It has so much science behind it. But that doesn't mean that other ingredients and natural ingredients aren't also gold standards and aren't also really beneficial and effective. It's just that we don't have the studies for them because we don't have the money to put behind them. Like someone's got to pay for it. And if you're not going to make that money back, there's very little incentive to study it. Yeah. It's it's just an important point that everyone just needs to keep in mind. It's something that I even, you know, to, to point out my own faults, it's something that I even find myself tripping up over in my own writing. You know, I will, I'll be like, oh, well, gosh, look at all this research that this has, you know, or this product has, that must mean. And then, you know, you kind of trace it back and you, you find that it's owned by this parent company. And then you're like, well, of course it has all of these studies behind it because, you know, that parent company owns, you know, several of their pharmaceutical companies and they, you know, so it's, it's something that, to just like keep your mind open to and to just remind yourself that there are reasons that the world is set up the way it is. So just out of curiosity, you know, what are some of the bigger challenges that you see in the beauty industry? We've obviously talked about many here, but are there any that we haven't that, you know, that you are grappling with that you find annoying personally? I'm just asking this totally out of curiosity, just because I, I think that you have fascinating insights. (laughs) Thank you. I think in the like past, maybe six months, of my career, I have, I am less concerned with like individual ingredients and these really like quantifiable things that you can find in beauty products or, you know, these statistics of how things are damaging the environment. And I'm more interested with these sort of like out in the ether concepts, like beauty standards, for example, I would love to see the beauty industry care about toxic beauty standards the same way it cares about toxic beauty ingredients. Because when you look at the physical and mental harm caused by beauty standards versus beauty ingredients, there's no contest. Beauty standards are so destructive to our psychological harm and to our physical bodies. And that's something that's really struck me in the past couple of months. It's like, we care so much about these individual ingredients that have like kind of a little bit of scary data behind them. But if you look to the harm caused by beauty standards and beauty culture in general in terms of anxiety, 
depression, self-harm, even suicide, like the, the quantifiable harm caused by reinforcing these standards is so much more dangerous than any paraben or phthalate or sulfate will ever be. So I would love to see that that focus in the industry. Sure. I 100% agree. Do you see avenues that that we can get there? I ask this just because I do think that this is obviously a big issue and I myself don't necessarily know how to tackle it other than just acknowledging that it exists. I, I don't know. Do you have? Yeah. I don't know that I have any better ideas, but I do want to say that like awareness and acknowledging that it exists is huge. Like there's a reason that, that we do huge awareness campaigns for like physical illnesses, you know, like breast cancer awareness, like the awareness itself is enough to make a change sometimes. And it's, it's an amazing first step. So I think, yeah, that awareness, that acknowledgement, it actually does way more than, than we think it does. I think it's also really vital for the, for the industry and for consumers to look a little bit harder at things like empowerment marketing, which like it's like toxic positivity in lipstick. Like it's very convenient to position beauty as empowering, as adhering to a beauty standard as empowering, because like in the world that we live in, coming closer to adhering to a beauty standard actually does give you power. Like that is a function of social capital. That is a function of economic capital. You know, people who adhere to beauty standards statistically, you know, are hired for jobs more often, make more money, get better treatment, you know, as children are given more attention from teachers and authority figures, which sets them up for excess. So like beauty is power. But I think that we take that too far when we say adhering to beauty standards is empowerment. It gives you power, but it gives you power in this patriarchal white supremacist system that really sets all of us up to fail. So I think looking a little harder at empowerment marketing and maybe just not not using empowerment marketing would make a big difference. And then I just think it would be so amazing if we could incorporate more therapy and more healing into the beauty industry, both in terms of like the people who run it and into the content itself. Because I think like beauty, the beauty industry, there are so many people that are coming from a good place. And what we want is to make the people who read our content and buy our products, we want them to feel beautiful. We come at it with the purest intentions. But a lot of times that doesn't actually solve the problem. It actually compounds the problem because we're saying, yeah, physical beauty is really important and here's how to get closer and be happier. But we know that actually being closer to it doesn't make you happier. And we need to address the actual problem. It's not like, here's how to better perform beauty. We have to start saying like, here's how we can work towards a future where beauty is going to have no bearing on how you're treated in the world and how you feel about yourself and how much money you make. So, I mean, again, I don't really know how we go about doing that, but yeah. You know, I love this idea of like bringing aspects of therapy into the beauty conversation. I think that's really insightful. And I think that's actually something that's quite practical from a content creation standpoint, you know, bring in people who who can explain to you why you feel the way you do in the context of beauty and, you know, how you can make yourself feel better outside of the context of 
you know, use this mask or yeah. Like how do you feel more beautiful? That has nothing to do with a single beauty product. Cause that that's a beauty story at the end of the day. Yeah. It's so true. So last question. I just have to ask you, you know, what do you do in your routine? I know we just spent a whole episode talking about <laughs> how we think the beauty industry should be bigger and larger than specific rituals, but I also know that rituals do sustain us in certain important ways. And so, you know, it can, while we need to talk about the big stuff, we can also talk about the little stuff. And so I'm just curious, what do you do for yourself? Yeah. I mean, everything has its place. My skincare routine is like super minimal. I'm very focused on preserving my skin barrier. My skin barrier is like the most important thing in the world to me. So I use, I use basically just two ingredients. I use Manuka honey, pure Manuka honey as my cleanser. I'll do a face mask with it like once a week. If I have a pimple, I use it as a spot treatment. And then I moisturize with plain jojoba oil on damp skin. And that's kind of my, that's kind of the extent of my physical put it on my face beauty routine. <laughs> but I do a lot to support my skin through like mindfulness and diet. I love to meditate. Meditation actually is scientifically proven to strengthen your skin barrier and reduce moisture loss. Yeah. So that's my number one tip. Omegas, getting your omega fatty acids is so important for skin health. So I'm like always eating nuts and seeds, lots of salmon. I love fermented foods for probiotics to help my microbiome. Uh, I try to sweat a couple times a week because sweat is very good for your skin. And I love to spend time in nature as much as I possibly can because that's also super supportive for your microbiome, reduces stress. Yeah. So it's really simple. I tend to think like whatever sustains you, sustains your skin. Whatever heals you, heals your skin. So, you know, I think... I think that we so often try to divorce our skin from ourselves mentally. And once you kind of bring them together, you realize that obviously all of this is interconnected. How could it not be? <laughs> it's insane to think that it would be, you know, two separate entities. Well, listen, I had so much fun today. This was such a great conversation. I am certainly walking away with things that I need to go think about and... <laughs> perhaps work on and, you know, chew on a little bit as we, as you said, but I think that's the point of conversations like this. So hopefully some people will listen to this and, and have some thoughts that they can, that they can ruminate on and, you know, we can make a more beautiful industry. Yeah. And there are so many ways to do that. And everybody has their own role and their own niche and their own thing. That's going to be really important to them. And, you know, if you're, if your thing is focusing on clean, safe ingredients, that's so necessary. And if your thing is focusing on dismantling beauty standards, that's so necessary. And it doesn't have to be all of it. It can just be one little part of it that you that you choose to participate in. Absolutely. We all have our spaces. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Hey guys, just popping back in here to say thanks for joining us this week at Clean Beauty School. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you're looking for more beauty content or just wellness content in general, don't forget to check out our website, mindbodygreen.com, our Instagram, mindbodygreen, and of course, our parent podcast, the Mind Body Green Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks again. See you next week.